This is The Neutral Position, hosted by Nick Palmisciano. Bringing honesty and reason back into conversation. Here's your host, Nick Palmisciano. I want to take a quick moment to thank one of our sponsors. When the founders of Ugly Chews reached out to sponsor the program and I looked at their website and saw the Chews, I have to tell you, I thought Ugly Chews were appropriately named. They're very ugly and your dog chews on them. Nailed it. Then the samples arrived and I realized they are not named correctly. They are far, far uglier than the word ugly lets on. They're hairy. They're not artificially colored. They're gross. But you know who didn't find them gross? My athletic body with a dumb face that won't let him breathe, Boston Terrier Rufus. Rufus can't get enough of them. Instead of sitting around slobbering and struggling to breathe, he sits around slobbering on an ugly chew while he struggles to breathe. He loves the damn things. These uglier than ugly chews are healthy. There are no artificial ingredients. There are no chemicals. It's just disgusting, horrific nature wrapped up in an ugly sun-dried chew. And in addition to being good for your dog's digestion, these things don't fall apart and get soggy like rawhide. I hate to say it because they're so damn ugly, but they're the best thing to happen to dogs since man let wolves get close to the fire and domesticated them. And if you're not happy with them, ugly chews gives you your money back. So if you want to make your dog happy and healthy, go to UglyChews.com. That's right, UglyChews.com. I am incredibly excited to have Jennifer Griffin on tonight. Uh, You know her from Fox News. You know her from some of the greatest interviews in history. And Jennifer... Tell us about yourself. Oh, my gosh. Nick, thank you. First of all, (laughs) Chief National Security Correspondent, Fox News. I've been at the Pentagon for 15 years. I was overseas for about 16 years before that, um, covered a lot of conflicts. My husband's a journalist. We started this journey when I was 20 years old. We met in South Africa, and I've just, you know, had a front row seat to history ever since. I want to say, like, how uh, interesting your family is to me because, like, (laughs) Like, you are a very intense person. Like, you walk into a room, everybody instantly knows you're in the room. And I meet your husband casually in a war zone in Ukraine. And he is— That's his happy place, by the way. He is so low-key. Like, I I also feel like bombs could be exploding in the background, and he would still be like— you know, totally. hey, it's really nice to meet you. Totally. And just You know what's funny about Greg? Um, so Greg Myrie, he's my husband. He was with AP for 20 years. He was with the New York Times when we were in Jerusalem and covering the Intifada. And now he's with NPR. And he spent two twice he went for se- seven weeks last uh, year to Ukraine. So he spent a long time in Ukraine. And I say to people, people will say, are you worried? Are you scared? And I'd be like, no. No, he's happy. This is his happy place. When he's up close to the front lines mm-hmm. reporting on conflict, uh, Greg has the personality. He ha- There's a funny story about when he came back from Ukraine last time, um, and I don't mean to make fun of uh, our organizations being concerned about the psychological health of their workforce, but um, – uh, they wanted him to talk to a psychologist sure. and see if he had PTSD or yeah. if he had trauma yeah. or anything. And they had allotted an hour's time. And Greg is really 
ever since I've known him, uh, he uh, is just steady Eddie. He's he he does not take in the he does not go high. He does not go low. Yeah. He's the same guy that I met when I was 20 years old. And that was 30 years ago. <laughs> but after five minutes of talking to the psychologist, he was giving them stats about how many murders had taken place in D.C. while he was gone and comparing them to Ukraine in Kiev and how Kiev was really safer than D.C. After five minutes, the psychologist said, well, I think we're done. <laughs> you seem enough. OK. I've you seem enough. OK. And he just I, I laugh because that's Greg. He um, he really doesn't take in the stress. Um, and my kids call me. Uh, we have three kids together and. Uh, I went when we were based in Jerusalem. I had to leave the day after Christmas to cover the tsunami, if you'll remember, back in yep. uh, when in Thailand. And it was very dramatic and it was very it, it was, was it was horrible. Yeah. Nick, it was so bad. That was one of the worst stories I'd covered because, uh, I mean, there were literally bodies in the yeah. trees when oh, we yeah. still when I arrived because we got yeah. there so quickly from Israel. And um so my kids uh, call me Mommy Tsunami <laughs> because when I come in to the house after a long day, you know, I yeah. throw things into disarray. Then I leave again and and Greg is there steady. This is not a normal career, especially your version mm -hmm. of the career has been, I mean, really wild. Like you've been everywhere <laughs> and done everything. How does how do you get into this? How do you end up on this journey? Well, it wasn't planned, I can tell you that much. Um, and I would say, so I was in college. I was a normal university student. I was at Harvard. And I met a, uh, a visiting professor. There was a, a journalist uh, from South Africa, an okay. editor. He was mm -hmm. the editor of the uh, main black newspaper in the country called The Sowetan. Yeah. And apartheid was still in place. It was the 80s. Mandela was still in prison on Robben Island. And we had coffee. And he said, why don't you come to South Africa? You can work at the Sowetan. You can, um, I was working on the school newspaper, the Crimson. And, and so it just sounded like a great adventure. I yeah. thought I was going for six months, uh, maybe a year. I was going to live with a family and, and just go see what was going on. But I really didn't have a plan. And so when I arrived, things were kind of crazy in South Africa. There was a lot oh, of yeah. violence in the townships. Mm -hmm. There was the tension, you know, little fighting between yep. the ANC and Kata. Mm -hmm. uh, people were getting necklaced in the townships. And uh, I started traveling around with some war photographers um, going out in the morning, going on as they looked for sort of news stories. And, you know, these were some really good photographers. They ended up winning Pulitzer Prizes for the work they did. Uh, one, Greg Marinovich, uh, won a Pulitzer for a necklacing series that wow. was really dramatic. Um, he suffered tremendously, oh, I think, sure. psychologically after that. Sure. Uh, we talked a lot about that at the time. And then um, there were other report, other uh, course um war photographers who who were there at the time who were sort of cutting their teeth they were young mm -hmm. and um they ended up writing a book about their experience and they called themselves the bang bang club and then there was a hollywood movie made about them but i mean those were my sort of friends when i was 20 years old i met my husband 
Greg, who was, uh, he was older, he was already working for the AP and had a job. And I was mm -hmm. just a student. And we met in Soccer City in a, a full stadium at the first legal ANC rally before Mandela was released from prison. Wow. I was there the day that Mandela walked out of prison mm -hmm. in Cape Town. That was my first news story. And after that, I was hooked. It was like, you know, well, that it was a, like, it was a, like a drug. <laughs> that's an amazing start to a career. I mean, that, that, that was like, uh, an incredible moment in history. It was. It was. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've spent some time in South Africa, and Cape Town is one of the most beautiful places mm. in the world. And, so you beautiful. know, looking off Table Mountain, looking yes. to where kind of that green water and the yeah. blue water connect, but then right behind it yeah. is, you know, Soweto and just all of the, the, the juxtaposition. I mean, I think what what I learned, you know, and this this goes back, and this is something I've carried with me for for thirty years. Um, I've just I learned a lot about bias, mm -hmm. and I learned a lot about making assumptions and mm -hmm. viewing things through uh, a certain lens, or seeing that maybe. Um, uh, well, it was a really interesting time because there were some journalists there who were really activists more than journalists. Yep. And then there was an older cadre of uh, reporters, a lot of them print reporters who worked for the Washington Post. And this was sort of the still the heyday of foreign correspondence when uh, newspapers still had foreign correspondence. They had big bureaus. They put a lot of money into, you know, the CBS Bureau. They had excellent, mm -hmm. you know, really iconic yeah. uh, foreign correspondence. And so then you had the older group of journalists who really, many of them had, had been in Vietnam and had covered all the conflicts since Vietnam. And I just learned so much sitting around the dinner table and, and the bars and listening to their stories and starting to differentiate between what kind of journalist did I want to be? Who, who, who did I respect? And, and how did they try to navigate uh, this world of um, activist journalists versus those who really tried to present all sides uh, yeah. in a fair manner and and it's it's been a it's been a long road it's been 30 years i think we've seen journalism change a lot in a that lot time frame and, and i've i've witnessed it i've been uh, a part of it and you know but i'm pretty i'm pretty proud of the journey that i've had but it wasn't planned at all well that, i mean those are usually the best the best trips right? <laughs> I, you brought up something though that i wanted to ask you about journalism has changed um probably mostly because of the medium and the speed with which information comes at us. You ha you are extremely well respected. Even, even when people have come at you in the past, <laughs> you've had people from both sides of the aisle saying, That means I'm hey, doing my job. Hey, this is, <laughs> this is not fair. You know, she's objective. She, you know, um, she doesn't mess around. Like, I mean, like I, I remember a couple of incidents where people, <laughs> people have come at you, but, I think that my impression, and I could be wrong because I'm not an expert, is that it is that more and more journalists are playing fast and loose with information because they are racing to get a story out. Well, I think it's the nature of the way the business has changed. I mean, when I started, first of all, let's remember, there was no internet. Mm -hmm. There were no cell phones. We had beepers that we carried. Uh, we faxed, Which was very fancy. Which was very, <laughs> and I didn't even have a beeper because I was just a freelancer. But the beeper would go off all night long and we'd get mad at the journalists who would send out like, you know, happy birthday announcements in the middle of the night because, you know, it was supposed to be for, for um, breaking news. Um, 
I faxed my stories. When, when Greg and I went to Somalia, I mean, you ask how I, I got into this business. When I finally, I had to go back and graduate from uh, Harvard. And when I did finally graduate, my dad gave me a little bit of money for graduation. I think it was like $1,500. And that was supposed to last me for the year and get me started as a freelancer. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to South Africa where Greg, my boyfriend, was. And when I arrived, we had been dating long distance for two years. When I arrived, he said, oh, great, you're here. Just wait. I'll be back. I, and he was with AP, and they had, sent, they had assigned him to go to Somalia. It was uh, the summer of 1992, full famine in full force. Um, again, no cell phones, no way to communicate. Sat phones, if you're lucky, you could borrow mm-hmm. a UNICEF or, or ICRC, Red Cross sat phone. Yeah. Um, and... And so he took off for Somalia, and I'm sitting there in South Africa thinking, what am I going to do? Yeah. And and being somewhat hot-headed, and now I'm the ripe age of 22, <laughs> I decided to take all that money that my dad gave me for graduation, and I bought a ticket to Nairobi, which was the only place that planes were flying into Mogadishu. They were little kind of puddle jumper yeah. planes yeah. that, um, you know, the area, you know, the movie Out of Africa? Yes. Karen Blixen had a house outside of Nairobi, uh, and just near there, there was a, uh, a little airport for these sort of small planes that were mm-hmm. flying into Mogadishu. And it's also the same airport where the cot dealers, the drug dealers, were flying the drug that sure. they loved to chew um, into Somalia at the height of the famine. Mm-hmm. And so they were taking accredited journalists on UNICEF planes, but I couldn't get on a UNICEF plane because all I had was my Harvard ID and um, wasn't a please, journalist. Please I, tell me that you rode on the drug dealer. I plane. went to negotiate. <laughs> I was told, I was told oh, that it, I could God. pay my weight in cot. And so I'm negotiating with the drug dealers and they're ready to take me. But, you know, I'm 5'10", so it was going to be a pricey ride with the cot dealers. And then a Canadian journalist uh, grabbed me and said there was an extra seat on the UNICEF flight. So we flew in, did a corkscrew landing, and there was was no... there was, uh, you know, at that point, Greg didn't know I was coming. He was using th- this is how this is how long ago it was, and how different journalism was. He was using a manual typewriter that was handed yeah. to him by his bureau chief in Nairobi, and he said, "Yeah, it worked for me." And so uh, I show up at the UNICEF house in Mogadishu, and he was a little surprised. And yeah, and then we started. Cu- we, we were it Jennifer, was AP. You know that's crazy, right? No, just- <laughs> no, that's just. You asked me how I got started, and 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 oh, by the way, my parents didn't know anything of what of I was doing. Of course they didn't. And this was the beauty of being a journalist then. You could go places. Nobody was taking selfies. Nobody had cell phones. Nobody yeah. had you. You could disappear and tell stories, and. People, you know, when when look, it was a it was a crazy time in Mogadishu. All yeah. those technicals and people with guns, and we hired, you know, uh, guards to take us around, and and it was dangerous. But you didn't feel like you were a target, and that's what changed over time for journalists huh. like us. Is that after Daniel Pearl was beheaded, yeah. after uh, after Sarajevo, when bounties were put on the head of journalists, yep. after ISIS began beheading journalists like. Jim Foley on yep. camera for mm-hmm. propaganda purposes, yep. that changed the whole landscape. So things we did when we we felt like we were, you know, protected in some ways. It was dangerous, but as long as you use some judgment, there, there were calculated risks. But 
there were not many journalists there that summer. We did a lot of stories on the famine, and the next, and about six months later, that's when the Marines were sent in, and then you yeah. remember Black Hawk Down. That was yeah, yeah. That was uh, yeah. I, that happened right after I got accepted to West Point. Oh yeah. So that was uh, top of mind. Yeah. You know, a young man, uh, you know, with all the arrogance and and fire and brimstone. You know, I, in the back of my head, it was like, you know, we're going to get them back for what they did yeah. kind of thing. That was yeah. uh, that was a very emotional time. Like, I remember the Delta guys, you oh, know, yeah. getting getting dragged through the streets. Oh, you know? no. And not not just the military, but uh, journalists were killed there. There was mm -hmm. a young uh, Dan Eldon was a young, very promising uh, journalist who was working with Reuters. And, you know, we still have a T-shirt that he made, he was making silkscreen t-shirts at the time, and Greg still has the t-shirt. As the type of guy he is, for 30 years he can keep the same t-shirt, yeah. but it, it had a silkscreen of of a sort of a red line through an AK-47, and it said, thank you for not looting. And, <laughs> you know, that was a kind of young, sort yeah, of yeah. tongue-in-cheek, dark yeah. humor that that you have in war zones, and, you know. Uh, but we, you you haven't stopped, though. Like you have achieved a very high status in well, life. Well, I, 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 I am not going to say that I do not still cover wars in the same way that we did when we were young. I took a decision probably around the 2007 time frame when we moved back from the Middle East and mm -hmm. we had two young daughters. They were, you know, six and eight at the time. And um, I took a decision. And then that was before my son was born. And I took a decision that I, we had rolled the dice a number enough of times, times, and we had a we had enough friends who had been either injured or killed that, that you know one of my proudest things. You talk about how journalism has changed. There aren't a lot of people who survive the stresses of uh, thirty years of the kind of uh, intense reporting that mm -hmm. we've done and the places we've been. I'm very proud that I'm still married to the same man. I manage to have three children and still I'm doing the job that I love. I'm doing it from the Pentagon. It's not exactly unsafe there, but it is it's probably more but dangerous. It's, but <laughs> well, Washington is really dangerous, but but and and the landmines are are much more unexpected in Washington. The it, war zone I like because yeah, you, you you at least you know have, who the enemy the, is. The Kevlar and, in the yeah, back. You at and, least and, you have uh, a flak jacket on. Um it's uh but truly, uh, but it's a, I, I would say it's a full body contact sport. I grew up yeah. playing sports and, and, you know, I come home and I feel like I've, you know, played rugby. Oh, it's, yeah. it's physical when you are sort of chasing a story, going on air. Uh, it's, it's a very intense from the moment I wake up, um, like many people, it, this is, this is high stakes. And, and you talked about whether, it's um, there are people out there. I don't like to think that people are out there trying to get stories wrong. They're not. It's just the pace at which uh, the pace at which we're expected to confirm things, to get facts right, to yep. not make mistakes. I mean, every day is is a high wire act. Do you feel as as a, a real journalist? Do you feel that you're competing with the the newstainment industry? So. I feel what's changed for me is I feel like I'm competing against disinformation. So I'm not looking to my right or left and thinking of other journalists that I'm 
trying to beat per se. I'm trying to make sure we get the story right. Mm. And honestly, that's taking more and more effort because of the information space and the way that our enemies have realized how to use the information space to manipulate all of us, uh, the American people, journalists, our government. Um, And so that that really multi it's like it's like a multi multifaceted Rubik's Cube every day that we're doing. And. And so I feel that what I'm competing against is, am I being lied to, used used for disinformation purposes? What's coming through social media that I, you know, how am I going to get tripped up by something that mm-hmm. may have no basis in reality? Yeah. That is scary. And so for that's sure. what I live in fear of every day. I don't, I actually see... Uh, and I said this to one of my colleagues who you would expect me to be competing against at the Pentagon. Uh, one of the other networks has a new uh, young reporter on the beat. And I said, welcome. And oh, by the way, we were all we all started here once. I'm the JV uh, person on the on the beat. There are people who have been there. David Martin from CBS have been there for 30 years. Barbara wow. Starr just retired, but she had been there for almost 30 years. This is a it, the Pentagon is an unusual beat where people stay a long time. Mm-hmm. And and one of the interesting things about being on a beat for that long, there are dangers. There are dangers of getting too close to your subject, to sure. to sure. inside the in the weeds. To, um, uh, but I think if you've spent time in the field and then you've spent a lot of time in the Pentagon building relationships with people as they move through the military and rise up, mm-hmm. those relationships are built on trust. I have to walk in the building every day and I have to look people in the eye that I'm reporting on. It's much different when people are just lobbing accusations at leaders and they don't have to look them in the eye the next day and they don't have to account for whether they got a story wrong, misquoted somebody. Mm -hmm. I have to account for that every day and I think that's a good thing. And so I think that I said to this young reporter, I said, look, we all started here once and it's like drinking from a fire hose. So as and I again, I played sports. It's sportsmanlike to help your opponent and then go out and compete and beat them. Yeah. Um, you don't want to you don't want to I don't I don't need an unfair advantage of 15 years of being on the beat. I'd rather help that young person get up to speed, tell her what I know in terms of the way things work in the Pentagon. And then it's more fun to go out and compete against that person. So I think for the American people, having a strong Pentagon press corps, I'd much rather see good reporters out there. I mean, when we're in a gaggle like we were today after uh, a briefing on the Chinese spy balloon and we're talking to the briefers afterwards, I love learning from all the other reporters and all the other questions that they're asking. That makes me sharper. That makes me better. That makes me think of more questions. Mm. So I do think there's a value to the press corps and the camaraderie. You know, they're rules of the game. And and the people who don't get that are maybe the bloggers who are, haven't yeah. been in a press yeah. corps or yeah. maybe a, a person who's sitting on the air and has never met the source of the uh, who they're talking, that they're talking about. It's, mu- it's very easy to tear things down. It's much more difficult to try and figure out what's actually going on. Do you even think about 
the the bloggers. I mean, because some of these people have some bloggers are excellent, huge by the way. Audiences. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it depends who you're talking about. I mean, again, on my beat, there are military bloggers who are excellent. Um, so I take information. You know, I kind of feel like I'm when I go into the Pentagon and I sit in my small booth and I close the door. I mean, I sit. In, my booth is about the size of this table, mm -hmm. and I sit with my producer, and she's like a, a wingman to me, and we we navigate the building and we uh we you know we run and gun together and 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 we work the phones we walk down the hall and talk to people in person we gather information but i have many streams of information coming in i sometimes say to you know i've met uh people who fly drones and they they're bringing in lots of feeds and they're mm -hmm. having to collate that and and know whether they're going to target something uh, it's very similar we we are very similar to the nmcc in our booth the national military command center in the basement of the pentagon where they're bringing in all sorts of information it's what fox pays me for is 30 years of experience in the field, overseas, in the building, with sources, to be able to sort of quickly understand what information's coming at me, what sounds true, what's not true, what, you know, how do you do that in real time? It's like, I mean, you- Those you, are fast decisions. It, it, they are fast decisions. Yeah. I don't always get it right. Yeah. But, but that's what they're paying for. And that's why being on the beat actually uh, is a benefit, I think, at this point in time. That, that's super interesting. Um, I, I can't imagine. I mean, because I, I know how you operate from a very distant uh, <laughs> perspective. But I mean, I have to think you have hundreds, if not thousands of messages coming in a day with information to you personally and, yeah. and your team. And I try to answer more. all of them. Uh, that's another do. thing. I, I do, do actually I try. But I often feel like if I don't answer this right away, sometimes it makes my family crazy and they say, Mom, get off the phone. But sometimes I feel like if I don't answer right away, it's like things will pile up. And and so I'm, I'm always kind of, it does lead to a sort of hypervigilance state that can drain you. Yeah. And, and so oh, I, tr I try in the morning, you know, to get up and go and exercise, you know, I do Pilates and, and I try to just clear my head for at least 45 minutes or an hour so before I start the day. Even if my day is started at 6 a.m., I try to get a little exercise before I enter the yeah. Pentagon just because that's the only way to sort of calm that, that where your brain is just always, always going. You mentioned um, something that I thought was really interesting and in that you have to report on people that you literally are seeing every day. True. And I've got to think at least 40% of the time, it's unflattering. Well, what I would say is, again, I really believe in the old Tim Russert rule of, you know, be tough with your questions, you know, ask... You can be tough but civil, mm -hmm. and and I think that's what's often lost. And and I think it's not that. I mean, these are human beings that you're covering, and yeah. and they make mistakes. Of course, they maybe haven't thought of something, and so if you ask a question, it may elicit you know it. But but these are people, and it's hard to take the human element out of it when you are covering. Uh, a story. I don't care if it's City Hall or the police department or uh, or foreign leaders. These are human beings. So let's start with that. We are human beings. We don't get everything right. We're not perfect. Of course. And we're not and we don't have perfect knowledge and nor do our leaders. Mm -hmm. And what I have learned so much in the last 15 years 
is what I try to learn every day is really the process through which decisions are made. And so how is it that when a Chinese spy balloon shows up on your horizon, yeah. what does that trigger? What I want to understand, I, instead of people just starting with, why didn't you shoot it down? Why didn't you shoot it down? Those are like such like emotional, childish, immediate responses. I want to know who saw it, who did, was it reported to? You start a game of 20 questions. Is it bigger than a bread box? Is it smaller? You start, and then you start figuring out, and when you start asking questions and you're wrong, that's when you find that your sources, and you have many sources that you're asking, start saying, no, 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 actually it was this way. And that's when you start learning. And so you start piecing mm. together a picture. It doesn't happen instantly. You don't get the answer. They don't just hand you the answer. You start putting together a, a, a matrix of information. It's called um, gathering thread, mm -hmm. uh, g gathering yarn on a story. And, and sometimes you have more time than others to do that. But I want to understand, I try to think of, it's almost like a detective going through the story. Instead of simply asking a gotcha question, which may feel good for a minute, I'm not sure that's informing people. Mm. I really want to understand how this happened. What did you know? When did you know it? Uh, who, you know, and in the process of that, there's a lot of nuance. And unfortunately, television and reporting these days doesn't do nuance really well. Terribly, yeah. And and so a lot gets lost in the noise. Mm -hmm. And it's my job. And one of the reasons, you know, I I really believe, and this goes back to when I started in journalism. One of my first jobs in broadcast was for Voice of America. And Voice of America, funnily enough, it was seen as sort of a propaganda arm of the U.S. government. When we lived in Pakistan, we were covering mm -hmm. Afghanistan. This mm -hmm. was in the early 90s. Ironically, the editing that I was that I had by editors at VOA was much tougher than anything I've ever had since for newspapers, for other, for ABC, who I worked for in Moscow, or for Fox. Those editors were stripping out all the time any adjectives because adjectives can be opinions. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it was a really lean way of writing copy, and any time you said something. They said, attribute it. Who said it? Attribute it. Attribute it. Attribute it. It was such good training for a young journalist to just have the 101 uh, hammered into you. And I try to remember those those lessons from way back when, when I'm putting together a script. How do I know it? Who said it? How do they know it? Mm -hmm. Maybe they're wrong, but I'm going to quote them. You mm -hmm. know, it, it's, it's very um, – there is an art to this, and there is – you know, you, you try to go through sort of good practices. Um, and I think, again, I'm constantly every day trying to strip out any sort of opinion. Um, I'm not perfect. And the absence of what you include in a story can also lean a, lead a viewer. Of course. So there's lots of ways to lead a viewer. And I'm just always trying to talk to my producer and say, are we being fair here? Is it fair? What's the other side? What am I missing? And it's that editing process that I think gets lost a lot now in um, in journalism and and so but I, I, I really I try to tell people what I don't know also I think it's really important to say we just don't know and often our leaders don't know certain mm. things they don't have perfect knowledge and I think that's really hard for people to understand with that in mind you know right now confidence in 
the government, politicians, is, is at a pretty significant low. I think Horrible. it's the lowest since the 60s oh, or something like that. Probably lower. Um, yeah. And all our institutions, you, by the way. And all our yeah, – even the military terrible. is down since, yeah, since uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan yeah. has dropped from the low 90s to the 70s, which, mean, is, just crazy. which is brutal. Um, but specific to politicians, specific to some of the, the bigger name uh, military leaders mm. – you work with these people. You mm. see them on a daily basis. America thinks essentially they're all garbage, and we Gosh. can't we can't trust them. And that's really a shame. They are trying to, <laughs> uh, and they're and that they're trying I mean, to undermine yeah. kind of the American people. I wish they could spend a day with me in the Pentagon. Or, uh, it's not to say that these people don't make mistakes. People mm-hmm. make mistakes. Uh, they also get overruled, and. The military is a complicated place because you don't get to just make up the rules and you right. don't get to you don't get to overrule the civilian order unless right. it's illegal. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a complicated system. Um, I wish people could. And it's not just the military, but let's just use the military since that's my sort of day in, day out life right now. I wish they could spend time with these senior leaders that maybe have become sort of caricatures or memes Mm -hmm. on the internet and through social media. First of all, I think a lot of those memes are elevated and amplified by our enemies because what would, what would Russia or China or Iran or North Korea really like to do right now? They'd like to discredit the U S military. They'd like to discredit, they'd like to drive a wedge between the enlisted and the officer class. Mm-hmm. So what have we seen happen over the years? A lot of the memes and a lot of the things are designed to divide us, whether we're as a country or a military um, and journalists. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're tearing down journalists all the time. Yeah. Uh, um, so I'm not saying it's there's not real criticism or even fair criticism. Criticism is good. That's what sure. the First Amendment is based on. That's what this country is based on. And that's what – but what used to happen with free speech and difference of opinions is, A, we would keep them civilized. I was with a, a British uh, parliament member tonight who is the defense uh, – he, he um, is in charge of defense for uh, – and, and is providing a lot of the weapons to Ukraine through the British government. But he's a member of parliament. And he w- watched our State of the Union the other night and he said, "Woof." That almost seemed like question time in Parliament, <laughs> which is known for its sort of boisterous, you know, yelling back and forth and and challenging the 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 prime minister mm-hmm. and really uh, questioning the prime minister in a very sort of raucous way. Yeah. The difference, he said, is in Parliament, in the Parliament system, they're all called the Honorable X. So yes. instead of congressman, they're the Honorable Parliament and and name of parliament member. Mm-hmm. And there is a rule. There, so while it seems crazy and raucous in, in question time, there are actually rules. And one of the rules is that you can't say that someone's lying. Mm. You can't impugn the character of another member of parliament or the prime minister. You can question them. You talk around it. You might say, I think the minister might be mistaken or may have misled <laughs> us in an unintentionally. But whatever he was saying, but you could never say he's lying yeah. or she's lying yeah. because you would be impugning their character and they are technically the honorable X. Hmm. So so there are still rules of the road in that chaotic uh, parliament. 
There are no rules of the road anymore in terms of civility in our country. It's disgusting. The kind of behavior that we see in our uh, Congress, in our media, on air, there used to be rules against saying certain, you know, the kinds of things that we hear people say on a daily basis. Mm. It really has debased the ability to debate. Nobody sticks to facts anymore when they debate. They just yeah. immediately go to uh, hateful, mm -hmm. saying hateful things about their enemy. There's no sort of Oxford-style debate where you actually counter people on points and, and facts and whatever. It's, it's gets, it gets into the, the mud so quickly. And it's really brought all of us down. It's debased the media. It's yep. debased politicians. It's led to lack of trust. Um, now, the military is a little hamstrung because the leaders of the military are somewhat muzzled in terms of how they can fight back because they're yep. supposed to take orders from the civilian leadership. Mm -hmm. And they and so I see growing frustration that they can't either just explain how a decision was made or what went wrong or why something didn't go the way people. But people are just vicious in the oh, way yeah. they're coming after them. And frankly, they're wrong. I, I I've covered a lot of these stories and and the 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 uh, the narratives that are out there are misleading at best and and I, I it's frustrating to me because I think wait if I were to explain with facts about how a certain decision is made why is it that people are still saying why the next day you know mm. it's 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 really uh, we're in a kind of post-fact uh, world where where people are not open minded anymore. They yep. don't want to really be, know. They want to be right. They want to be emotional be and right. react, yeah. and they want to. And they are assuming the worst about the people sitting across from them, and it is really tearing this country apart. I, I grew up in a household. You know, you can imagine an Italian Portuguese household <laughs> where half of my family was very liberal, and half of my family was very conservative. I think that's most families in America. And they would just, we'd, we'd sit around the dinner table, and they would argue. I'm talking argue. Yeah. Nonstop for hours. This was my childhood, watching adults argue points. Uh-huh. And then, like, at some point, like, my grandmother or my mom would be like, all right, that's enough. We're enough. having dessert. And then it would just be <laughs> over, and everyone would be friendly. Yeah. And now... Um, and sometimes like, you know, as a, as a 11, 12 year old entering the fray, mm -hmm. sometimes I got embarrassed because it was like, you know what, my opinion really wasn't backed up. And, yeah. but that was an important lesson too. It's okay to be wrong. Yeah. And I don't think anybody feels like they can be wrong online anymore. Like, Everybody doubles down. They double down. And it, nobody says, ah, good point. Hey, yeah, you were right. Or or, and I, or do, I was wrong. I still do that online. And yeah. it actually, yes. people are like, oh, really? Like, is there like, they're waiting for yeah. the, the, you know, the sneak attack or something. And it's not that hard. I mean, we can't be right about everything. It takes a lot of time, effort, and resources to make the neutral position. And we couldn't do it without our sponsors. In 2016, a vet named Jason Murph slid into my DMs to talk about the seasoning he had created for grilling meats. I gave him some advice on marketing and he sent me some samples of his new brand with a donkey on each bottle emblazoned with the words, grill your ass off. Fast forward seven years. I'm at a charity event for veterans and who's the headline sponsor? None other than grill your ass off. 
He still has the amazing seasoning that started it all, but now he's got condiments, beef jerky, incredible sauces, and even gear. Grill Your Ass Off won the American Freedom Fund Veteran Small Business of the Year Award and is committed to giving back to veteran causes and mentoring veteran entrepreneurs. The one downside? After using these incredible seasonings, you will be assless. That was a dad joke. You see, the product is called Grill Your Ass Off. So you know, you grill and then boom, ass gone. No, you don't like that? Okay, well anyway, check them out at grillyourassoff.com. That's grillyourassoff.com. Great taste, great company, great cause, no ass. Use NP15 at checkout for 15% off at grillyourassoff.com. That's November Papa one fiver. Well, look, I remember there was a story. I can't remember which one it was, but one hour I went on and I said something. And then within the next 15 minutes, I realized I had been wrong. Mm. And the next hour I went on and I corrected it. How often do you see people do that? And what was so weird to me, because I just thought, well, I've got to correct it. I got a call from the White House. I won't say which White House saying, Hey, thank you. The, the, The president was watching and really appreciates that you corrected that. I was like, Wait, don't call me. This is normal. Like I <laughs> this, is this, what I'm this should not to do. this should not go be be such an elevated event. Uh, uh, I made a mistake. I owned up to it. We're moving on. Yeah. But but no I just see a lot of doubling down, tripling down, and 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 wanting to believe there used to be a sort of, you know, Occam's razor. What's the most logical reason that something happened? <laughs> That's usually the reason. That's usually the reason. And, um, and we are so prone to conspiracies now or to believe that there was, you know, all this coordination behind the scenes. The one thing I've learned at the Pentagon and in covering Washington, whether it's at the Capitol Hill or the White House and the way they all interact, is it's often not the, you, you assume everyone's talking. You assume everyone knows yeah. what everyone else is doing. Not true. And there's a, a lot place. of chaos. There's it's a, a lot of chaos. There's it's like a bad game of telephone on most days. And I can and I usually spend a lot of time just trying to do the forensics either on a story, another uh, or debunking something that I know not to be true and think, how did that go off the rails? How did mm. they get from there to there? It's 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 really always a puzzle. Do you think the quality of politicians has gone down over the years? Who would put their family through being in the public eye right now? You know, this is not Mr. Smith goes to Washington anymore. This is not the era where you had this. I mean, there are still wonderful people and I hate to impugn the whole political class. Just like, just like I won't impugn the whole, you know, all journalists. It, Everyone could do better. and But I think the people that are being attracted to the limelight, whether it's on television or people, politicians who want to be on television, or there is something, you know, a bit off and slightly narcissistic about yeah. this this group that we are, we are now sort of, it, it's not the, um, they're not the politicians who, we've kind of broken Washington by not allowing politicians who disagree or from different parties to sit down and break bread together. Yep. When I was growing up, and I, I grew up outside of Washington, so I've seen this town through different iterations mm. since I was young. And I worked in, uh, you know, I, I worked as a page on the Hill. I worked for a lobbyist. So I saw it from all different angles mm-hmm. before I was a journalist. and But summer jobs and what have you. And I knew families who all had uh, 
you know, usually high-level people in government, whether Congress or at the Pentagon or in the White House. Those were the kids I grew up with in in our school, for better or worse. And yeah. so when you get to know people's parents because you're just, you know, you're just a kid. You're playing, yeah. you're playing yeah, yeah. tag in their backyard or you, you know, are coming in eating, you know, uh, spaghetti at their dinner table. It's a little different than when you hear these these caricatures of, of these people. But we've broken Washington because people don't sit down and, from different sides of the aisle and talk to each other anymore and have a meal and go to their, you know, have their kids grow up together. Yeah. Everyone races out of Washington, goes back to their home districts and starts bad-mouthing Washington, acting like it's the worst place in the world. What I've learned over the years, Nick, is that we can't – private groups are great. Volunteer groups are great. NGOs are great. But government and the private sector have to work hand in hand to get anything done. If you want to do anything at scale, you're still going to need uh, – you're still going to need the government. 100%. And, and so it's really – we can talk more about it, but I, I, it's a longer story about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, yeah. the things that veterans groups did to go in and help – but let's not forget, they didn't do it alone. There were still the Absolutely. 82nd Airborne. Yeah. There were still, uh, so you know, trained Marines who were evacuating those tens of thousands of people. Of, of course. But are we better when veterans groups plus the U.S. government work together mm -hmm. at and are rowing in the same direction? Of course, just like in Ukraine. We saw it firsthand with yep. the evacuation of Benjamin Hall, my Fox colleague who was injured and our colleagues who, Pierre and Sasha, who were killed. That was a situation where the U.S. government could not go in and rescue Benjamin yep. Hall. But NGOs like Save Our Allies and talented, amazing Americans who had great skills thanks to their work yep. with the U.S. military, they were able to team up and then we got them Benjamin across the border into the hands of the 82nd Airborne. The defense secretary then authorized that Benjamin be treated for his amputation and uh, in the shrapnel that he had received in his body and get treated by the best U.S. military doctors, mm -hmm. uh, by the government in uh, at Landstuhl. Yeah. And he's back with his family. Yeah. And But, you know, I just – I get very upset when I hear people just – say that government's bad, journalists are bad, politicians are bad. It's tearing us up. But I think where it comes from is the average American is just generally disappointed with what they see from, from D.C., right? And, and I'm not arguing with you. I completely agree with you. I think that, you know, looking at Afghanistan, there is no way that any of that happens without the security that the U.S. government provided. Similarly, though, there's the the problem of so many of these Afghans that need evacuation oh. could be instantly solved by the power of the U.S. Absolutely. government. And so, you know, for me, um, I have incredible frustration with so many things in government. I have incredible frustration with some of the members of of Congress that get up and say outlandish things that I know that I know they know they're not true. Right, right. Like I know it's all that. performative. It is a performance. And unfortunately, there are a number of people that believe those performances. And so we end up with 
kind of the dumbest imaginable arguments, but they end up so leading dumb. the way. And they take up so much airtime. I mean, there are so many important things in the world right now yeah. that we should be discussing. Yeah. And and this, so so, look, I agree with you, but I guess what I'm I'm not willing to give up on is that. I've met really good people mm -hmm. who are still trying to do good on Capitol Hill. You're going to interview some of them, I think. Yeah. I've I know really good journalists out there. We wouldn't know about a lot of the things that have had to be fixed in this country without journalists. I mean, when there were no MRAPs for, for protecting troops yep. in Iraq, that was a USA Today reporter mm -hmm. who then Robert Gates, who was defense secretary, read the story and said, fix this, get yeah. them the MRAPs. What's yeah. holding up the MRAPs? Mm -hmm. And that saved lives. I could give you a million examples of that. I think we need to go a little easy. We need to be critical but go a little easy on the human beings who are deciding to step up and take on these leadership roles because this is a pretty ungovernable country right now. And mm -hmm. we are in a pretty dangerous information uh, uh, space with great power competition, China, Russia, yep. Yep. and they're laughing at us because we're doing more to destroy ourselves than they could ever 100%. do to us. Yeah. If, if this country falls, it will not be from an outside power. It'll be from our inability to function. And that has to stop now. So how would you change that? Civility. It's so simple. Let's go back to things we learned when we were in kindergarten. Treat your neighbor like you would like to be treated. Listen to people. Don't feel like you're always on attack and, and uh, just start by treating people decently. You start by treating each person that you encounter during the day the way you would want to be treated. I mean, it's so basic. And then let's just take that to online. So your online behavior, everyone needs to clean up and think, you know, you know, am I just attacking people because uh, I'm anonymous and mm -hmm. I, they can't get me and can't. So let's lower the temperature, have reasonable debates. I'm not saying you have to agree with everyone who's in power or not be critical and vote them out if they did something wrong. Uh, you know, but if you destroy journalists and you say that all journalists are bad and corrupt and that the media is is somehow complicit in, in everything that's going on as opposed to being the watchdog that it's mm. supposed to be. Um, if there's a bad journalist, if they make a mistake, th the public should call. If if someone publishes something they know not to be true, there should be consequences for Absolutely. that. And there aren't any consequences anymore for anything. Mm. There's no accountability. But we have lost our way in terms of would you let your children behave the way people are behaving right now? No, no. Absolutely not. Yeah. How do – but – how do we affect institutions? So me as an individual, yeah. it, it's very easy for me to affect me, which is what we all, we can only control what we can, can control. Right. But we do, we have these institutional problems. Yeah. There are a number of journalists that are not good and maybe they're not part of, you know, Fox or CNN or some of the big houses, but they still have audience. Sure. They're not good. They have agendas. They're not trying to, to, share the news they're trying to pitch a narrative right we have politicians that are just clowns yeah. but they have huge audiences sure. how do we combat that from an institutional basis and i know that's not easy it's really hard because you know you 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 walk pretty quickly into curtailing free speech mm -hmm. 
And it's I battle with this all the time. I sometimes think, well, you're not allowed to yell fire in a theater. What? Where's the line anymore for where we're inciting people to mm-hmm. do to violence yeah. or to destroy things? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know because. I still, in my heart of hearts, believe that the more debate and the more access to facts that people have, the more we'll get closer to the truth and, and then it'll crowd out the noise. But the noise is pretty loud right now. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I'm not sure it's working. And so where, but where's the line and how do you regulate it? Do you regulate it? People hate being regulated. Our constitution is pretty sacred. You don't want to be messing with the First Amendment. But People are abusing some of these rights that have been given under the Constitution. I I think we're going to have to – I don't know. I don't have the answer. If I did, you know, I'd be writing about it. But but it's definitely keeping me up at night. If there was one thing that you could change – like you were – God for a day. You get get one wish, but that wish has to be used (sighs) for – uh, improving many. the United States of America. Oh, I love this country. It actually makes me sort of like, what could we do to if you had one wish? What, um, would, what would you change uh, with the with the blink of an eye? Gosh, mm. I, I I really think again, not to sound too Pollyannish, but I I still believe. I just wish we could sort of take it back, take the temperature down and get back to civil discourse. I think you can vote people out who you don't like. You don't mm-hmm. have to put their heads on pitchforks. Mm-hmm. You don't have to say think about your language. I mean, we just have to get back to some some civility. That would be what I would I would request. Do you have hope for the there's kind of a next emerging class of politicians. I yeah. think, I think you know. Whether- I have a lot of help. I have a lot of faith in young people. By the way, I, I do mentor. Too. I mentor young I people too. all the time. I see the ones who've come through, uh, who are at universities and come through COVID. I see the ones who mm-hmm. are working hard every day. Who I see behind counters. Who, who you know, it, it kind of yeah. makes my. They're a lot smarter than we give them credit for. Oh yeah. And you yeah. know, we complain about them being on their phones. But, you know, a lot of them are learning a lot on those phones. And a lot of them are a lot more tuned into the world than we give them credit for. So I actually think the next generation, I I think we've kind of messed things up. And I think we need to be a little more humble as our generation. But I think the young people are pretty switched on. I think every generation fixes a lot of stuff and then messes up a lot of stuff. And a lot of it has to do with changing technology, right? I was a computer geek when computers came out. Like I made my first virus in 1992 or 93. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, it wasn't anything super bad. We just did it to each other. Like we had a couple of nerd (laughs) friends, but it create, you remember when there was no windows Yeah. when it was just like, you had to type in, you know, yeah. It just created infinite files that were randomized letters and then three randomized letters after the period and would fill a hard drive. You know, we try to do that to each other. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But from that to all of a sudden there were BBSs where you could talk to people through your computer and then the Internet. Oh, And that was how I grew up is through this crazy period of time. And now... The, what I had, what I thought was a powerful 
machine yeah. pales in comparison to right. this tiny device that, right. that we have access to. And we're, you know, chat uh, GPT just came out. That's incredibly powerful. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Mm. The world's about to change significantly over the next two, three years yeah. just through AI. Oh, my goodness. And we're going to screw that up. I mean, wow. we're going already we're gonna screw it up. Yeah. And so, you know, our generation created all of these things. But our generation also is going to make all the mistakes associated with it. Right. To your point, what I what I do see with this generation, I think they are extremely kind and extremely empathetic. Um, my like, you know, I have like 107 children, as you know, <laughs> and um I wish I did. <laughs> they, uh, the issues of race that maybe we grew up with, the mm, issues it's gotten of so complicated. It seemed a lot simpler before, well, and, and my kids say, "Mom, you just don't know." I was like, "No, I know. I went to apartheid South yeah, Africa. Like, like, I, I actually do know. I do. I, and, I really and, get it." <laughs> but they actually, for them, it's it's a non-issue. Like they're. They're just like they look at oh, us yeah. like yeah like we're like Neanderthals what's wrong? Yeah, yeah exactly like what is wrong yeah how did your generation right, have these right, issues right right because they don't it's not a thing for them right and I I think that's like incredible progress yeah. and um, bullying is not what it was when we were mm. there's definitely cyber bullying there's definitely yeah. issues yeah. there but it's not what it used to be there aren't physical altercations all the time. Um, they kids stick up for each other if mm. somebody is mean to them, even if they don't like the kid. Mm. It's a very, it's it's a very different generation. So for all the knocks on them, no, they get a lot of knocks, and there are some things that you know. But again, some good parenting can help yeah. them through this. But, but I I think, um, I think they're actually pretty resilient. Mm. And I think COVID actually tested them in ways that we didn't get tested at, when we were young, and and I think they're kind of looking at the world a little differently, knowing mm -hmm. that, you know, you can't take anything for granted and you don't, your path isn't necessarily going to be straight. And I actually think they, I mean, look, it really harmed a lot of them and it and did. they it it set did. them back and the mental health issues are extraordinarily huge right now at all levels yep. of our society. But, but, but I think it also has strengthened this next generation in some ways. What do you want for your kids? Oh, I love my kids. Um, I just want them to be good people. I want them to, I want them to carry on with the, the good character that my husband and I have worked really hard to expose them to the world, to introduce them to all sorts of, all different points of view and experiences that they wouldn't necessarily have grown up with. Um, you know, being involved with the military community has been very profound for my kids because they were young when the bulk of the wounded from Iraq and Afghanistan were coming mm. through Walter Reed and through through friendships and invitations to be up at Walter Reed they got to spend a lot of time up there and they're very empathetic kids who really get uh, how complicated this world is mm. and uh, two of them were born in Jerusalem during the Intifada. That was a crazy time. I mean, I was wearing a flak jacket yeah. when I had a, a nine-month 
belly, um, and I interviewed suicide bombers when I was pregnant, and and you know really it was crazy times, yeah. and you know one daughter was born just before the Iraq invasion, and when I left the hospital, I was given a gas mask tent uh, for her crib uh, because they were worried Saddam Hussein was going to fire chemical weapons into Israel. It it these kids grew up. They they are. I just, I just want them to keep their values, and I always say to them, every day from here on out, you're building your reputation, and don't do anything to destroy your reputation because it's very hard to come back from that mm -hmm. these days with the unforgiving, Unfor uh, relentless uh, remember nature every... of the yeah. social media environment that we yeah. live in, and everything's recorded. So I just hold my breath that they can get through these next few years, and. And with their, you know, remembering their values, keeping their reputations, not making a mistake. This world is so unforgiving right now. Yep. You make one mistake and you're canceled. You're finished. You're, you, you're, your whole life is derailed. I watch this and I see the, the mental health toll that's taking on this younger generation. And I just hold my breath that they can just navigate this very complicated landscape. I, I have a feeling that they are going to be the generation that kind of blows it all off. Like right now, it's like everything is so critical. You you made a mistake. Right. I think I think they're going to be like, yeah, I made a mistake. The pendulum might come back. I, I think and it be, has. People to. are going to say, I think it has because to. it's it's pretty um, uh, draconian right now in it's, terms it's, of it's the brutal. the. Um, I, I I wouldn't want to be navigating this period as a kid. Yeah, we we all made mistakes. We know what they 100%. were, but they weren't documented. They weren't documented. And, and they and weren't judged, on the internet. Yeah. Turned into memes. Ah, I mean, it's horrible, you know. horrible. Is there anything that you would have liked me to ask you that I have <laughs> not asked you? Oh, um, well, there are so many um, uh, wonderful friends that you and I both share in common that um, that I could talk about, but. Um, you know, I think the main lesson for me in my life as I've been on this incredible journey and there have been some detours, you mm -hmm. know, I had breast cancer uh, right six months after my third child was born and spent a year fighting that. And it was pretty rough. Um, it was, you know, 17 rounds of chemo and, you know, I wasn't it was a very aggressive form of cancer, and I really wasn't sure how it would end. And so this life, this journey, this ability to tell people's stories, I love telling people's stories because every day there's a story that I come across, and through one way or another, I've seen in my lifetime how it actually can change lives, how it actually can help people. And so I'm still, despite you know, I'm old. <laughs> I'm I'm hardened. You're, you're not I've old. been. You're I've seen. Old. I've seen a, a lot of really bad things, mm -hmm. and and yet I'm still really optimistic about the potential to do good and the potential that if we all, yeah. whatever profession we choose, whether it's journalism, politician, military. We all have a way to make this world a little bit better along the way. I, I know it's almost cliche now, but um, the you know look for the helpers, and you know, no matter how bad things are, you talked about you know the tsunami. Um, oh obviously, goodness. you know um, you and I have have been involved in 
Afghanistan and, and Ukraine and all these important moments in yeah. time, no matter what, there's somebody running the other direction to yeah. go help the people in crisis. And, yeah. uh, and that, is, that is always inspiring. And those are the people I like to shine a light on. And you do a wonderful job. Of it. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Warrior Rising is the preeminent veteran entrepreneurship charity on planet Earth, the Milky Way and Andromeda. Warrior Rising provides education, mentorship, and resources to include business suits, computers, websites, marketing, and grants to veteran entrepreneurs willing to work for it. Each week, Warrior Rising selects one veteranpreneur to feature on our program. So here we go. The sun is low in the sky with just a twinkle of twilight left. This is the first time you've ever touched this rifle. The target sits off in the distance. All eyes are on it. You settle onto your stomach and get a good sight picture, pulling the rifle into your shoulder. You take a deep breath and exhale, ceasing your breathing for one brief instant as you gently squeeze the trigger. Boom. Smoke fills your nostrils as the alluring scent of gunpowder wafts across them. Your vision leaves the sight and goes wide, focusing in on the target. Bullseye. Bullseye on your first shot. A cold zero. And that's where Cold Zero Spirits was born. The whiskey is a unique bourbon and rye blend that makes for an outstanding sipping whiskey, old-fashioned base, or a crisp Sazerac. The vodka is quintuple distilled for the purest, cleanest vodka flavor you'll encounter anywhere. And if incredible taste and quality from a team that is relentlessly pursuing perfection isn't enough for you, a portion of the proceeds goes to multiple veteran charities. Try Cold Zero at coldzerospirits.com. That's coldzerospirits.com. Cold Zero. It's your first shot. We usually ask rapid fire quick Ooh, questions okay. just I'm for ready. fun. I'm ready. My favorite is always my first. Uh-oh. Uh, what is the toughest animal that you think you could defeat in hand-to-hand -hand combat? <laughs> Tim Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> Best answer. Best answer so far. Best answer so far. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you threw, we Did might, I throw you off? We might want to just... <laughs> <laughs> Mike Thank job. you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Jennifer Griffin, uh, truly uh, an incredible journalist, an incredible person, and I appreciate knowing you, and thank you for doing this. Thank you, Nick.